Hi guys, Marin here. I wrote and researched this episode you're about to listen to way back in January of 2020, and Greg and I recorded it in February, all at the beginning of this whole coronavirus situation. So while the episode is about a very different kind of disease, we do compare and contrast a little bit between the two, and I just wanted to give you a little bit of the context of when we recorded this episode so you can keep that in mind as you listen. Also, I am a microbiologist, so I'm very personally interested in bacteria and viruses I find them fascinating, and I hope you can hear that enthusiasm throughout this episode. However, I also hope that it's clear that that's because of my passion for the subject and not because I take delight in people getting sick. It's quite the opposite, actually. I'm just really excited about the kind of science that gets us closer to cures and vaccines for diseases like coronavirus and the one we're about to talk about in this episode. So with all of that said, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Greg. So uh, this episode is not for the faint of heart, which is why I asked you if you were squeamish. And I'm telling you right now, it's going to get a little squeaky. So prepare yourself. This is a story of a plague, a historical plague that could still, if we're not careful, come back to haunt us. (gasps) And it involves a lot of people experimenting on themselves. Now that I'm down with. It can be squeamish, (laughs) but at the same time... I kind of like the whole experimenting on themselves thing. There's a lot of innovation going on. But first, dear listener, you are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, Seeker's podcast on surprising and, dare we say, brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people who have shaped science. I'm one of your hosts, Marin Hansberger, and I will be telling this delightful story today. Uh, Hello, I'm Greg Foote. Uh, I have no idea what this story is going to be. Which is a perfect place to start because I'm actually going to kick us off with our expert for this interview. Her name is Molly Caldwell Crosby, and she is the author of a book on the subject called The American Plague. Mm. So I will let her set the scene for us. The people in Memphis were boarding themselves inside their homes and every day would just hang a sign on the door that had the dimensions they needed for a coffin, whether it was a a man or woman or a child. And then a wagon would come through the streets and yell, bring out your dead. The high death toll in Memphis was just due to the fact that the city was so massively overwhelmed by this. And there were a number of doctors and nurses and priests, nuns who stayed behind in the city to help. They really described just horrific scenes, like arriving at homes where parents had died and the orphan children had been living with their dead parents for days. As I said, it just was just terribly overwhelming. Bodies began piling up. There weren't enough grave diggers. You know, there were mass graves. It's just everything you can imagine. Almost apocalyptic was how some people described it. Well, this is upbeat, isn't it? Not that any of it is funny, but the bring out your dead bit, I mean, like Monty Python, yeah. right? It's it, That's a Black Plague situation. And yet we're talking about Memphis. So do you want to know what this plague is? Yeah, first, I did hear them say about um, you write up your height and dimensions on the on the thing for your coffin. Yep. Whenever anyone asks my height, I don't know what my height is. Do they charge you by the amount of wood it would take to I make your so. coffin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to charge by the by the length of the planks. So this plague that we're talking about is not black plague. We are not in medieval times. This is yellow fever. Mm, have the you yellow ever, plague. Have you ever heard of yellow fever? I have. Yes. Okay. So, but to understand how we get all the way to Memphis and this gruesome piling up of bodies in the street, we have to start with the lowly mosquito. 
as many plagues do. Of course, it's the mosquito. So yellow fever is primarily transmitted by the mosquito you've probably heard of. It's the Aedes genus of mosquito. You may have heard of Aedes aegypti. Oh, yeah. Whenever I think mosquito, that's the first thing I think of. <laughs> is that just me? No, I think pesky things that like to eat me because obviously I taste good. It's a little freaky. And uh, there's a reason why we're freaked out about it. It is because they carry all kinds of diseases, dengue fever, Zika virus, and of course, the star of our show, Yellow fever. Yellow fever belongs to a family of viruses which are called flaviviruses, which actually originated in monkeys. And how it works is a mosquito bites an infected monkey and takes that virus in with it with the monkey's blood. And then it zooms through the forest. It finds a tasty, tasty Greg. And when it decides it wants to have a Greg lunch, it also regurgitates some of its infected saliva into <laughs> your bloodstream. I'm going to be infecting you a lot in these episodes, Greg. You're going to get a lot of different Can't diseases. <laughs> so uh, now you unfortunately have yellow fever. Congratulations. A gift from a mosquito to Greg. Is that also, um, wouldn't they say Zika potentially came from uh, monkeys? Yes. A lot of these diseases that are what we call vector borne. So they come from a, a vector like an insect, a mosquito. Lyme disease is a, a vector borne disease by ticks. A lot of these diseases are zoonotic, which means they have jumped from a non-human animal like a monkey to a human and they somehow morph along the way to be able to take advantage of our biology. For the maths and physics nerds getting excited about the use of the word vector. Nope, not that <laughs> different, one. Different vector. Nope. <laughs> Where my bio peeps at is a different situation. <laughs> so that's that's actually only the first mode of transmission, right? From a non-human animal like a monkey to Greg, a human via mosquito, because then you, Greg, are infected with yellow fever and you become a repository of the disease. So a mosquito can bite you and then carry it to whoever else. Okay, so now we've hypothetically infected you with yellow fever. Apologies. Do you want to know what happens to you? No, but yes. <laughs> yes, you do. It is pretty gnarly. I will warn you right now, but I will let Molly explain with her. Bring it on, Molly. Come with on. her soothing voice. Yellow fever is a hemorrhagic virus. It causes high fevers and aching. And by hemorrhagic, I mean the virus will attack blood vessels. So it will cause outward bleeding from the eyes, nose, mouth, things like that. But it also causes internal bleeding and digested blood. So one of the most telling symptoms of this disease is called black vomit. It's definitely a, a gruesome disease. Uh, and then finally, the virus will attack organs and cause organ failure. And when it attacks the liver, the liver releases this bile, which turns the skin and the eyes yellow. And that's where um, the virus got its name. Uh, exactly. So, so bleeding from the eyes and just black very, vomit. Very casual, like very everyday. Fine. Wow. It's all fine. Like you're just, oh, hey, doc, small problem. I'm bleeding from all of the orifices in my face. Um, that must have really freaked people out when yeah. this kind of first started spreading. Well, and that's what I want to emphasize. We're going to get to that. But like when you have uncontrolled spread of this virus and it, it, I mean, it's like a zombie apocalypse. Like Molly said that in her first clip. She's like, it's an apocalyptic moment. I mean, if you're thinking about zombie movies of today, 28 days later, whatever it may be. I mean, can you imagine walking out into the street and just seeing dead bodies piled up because everybody just bled out. Needless to say, it's it's not fun. The disease is endemic, so it starts, it originates in the tropical regions of Africa where these mosquitoes also originate. But then in the 1600s, something happens that fundamentally changes the world and the way diseases travel. And do you have a guess about what that might be? 1600s. 
traveling around on boats yeah, and pretty much. trade. Beca- yeah, because of primarily the international slave trade changes the world in huge ways on the microbial level as oh, well as thought about that. in all of the other ways. So Molly's got some really good things to say about that. As the Europeans arrived in Africa, they kind of pushed into these forests for the slave trade. The infected mosquitoes would bite them. The humans would carry the virus back to the ships. But not only that, they carried the mosquito back with them. So ultimately, that brought both the virus and the mosquito to other parts of the world, including this hemisphere. And, you know, it was able to kind of set up South America and Central America and the Caribbean. So not only is this virus, you know, coming back in an infected person, but you've got barrels of water on these ships, obviously. Mosquitoes breed in standing water. So you're bringing the mosquito itself back and you see this complete explosion of not only yellow fever, but also other mosquito-borne viruses all over the world, basically anywhere mosquitoes can survive. So we start in these subtropical regions of Africa, but, you know, New York in the summer, pretty hot. There are mosquitoes. Anywhere there are mosquitoes, you have outbreaks of yellow fever. So as the slave trade continues to boom, obviously slave slavery continues for 400 years. So you're having all of this disease transmission for the period of 1600s all the way up until 1900s-ish. Wow. And uh, the, the first official epidemic, as recorded and reported by Westerners, pops up in the Yucatan in 1648. And the first yellow fever outbreaks in America pop up in the 1690s. And so now it's progressed from being this tropical disease to being something that is shutting down economies and nations. God, and it's going to go both ways, isn't it? It's like you're going to bring mosquitoes back, but then you're going to take kind of that mix, that um, the kind of, yeah, saliva level four, oh, yeah. kind of back again when you then go traveling again. So it becomes oh, yeah. into this like worldwide Petri dish of yellow fevery. Oh, wow. Exactly. Because every person then becomes this repository for the disease to be bitten by any mosquito. That'd be so interesting as a geneticist to try to model that. There is some really cool research going on into trying to figure out not only where these viruses come from, like RNA sequencing, because these are RNA viruses, but also then seeing how they've morphed throughout their their timeline. It's it's some very interesting like historical genetics. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, I should just say, I wish you could see Marin's eyes. This is like <laughs> microbiology, so she is in her absolute I'm so excited. core home right now. <laughs> the fact that they let me talk about diseases on this show is just like, nobody knows what they're in for. It's too much. It's too much. The enthusiasm is, dare I say, infectious. Oh, man. <laughs> I had to. I had to. Okay, so we progress to the 1700s, and this is where we start to see some of the most uh, impactful effects of this virus on things that are, you know, other than human health. So 1700s, the virus is making its way to New York, Boston, Charleston, uh, makes its way to Europe as well, because obviously Europe is involved in the slave trade. Uh, there's an outbreak recorded as far north as Glasgow in Scotland, which is cool, cloudy. So question for you, speaking of travel, have you ever been to New York? I have. Have you ever been to Washington Square Park? Uh, it's got the big yeah. arch in it. It's right by NYU. Have I been? Uh, I don't know. Fun fact, if you have and you've stood underneath the arch, you're standing on top of a mass grave. Wow. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I used to live in London and that's kind of a mass Yeah, that's true. Maybe that's, maybe that's not as exciting for um, you as a Londoner or anybody who's ever been to Paris. <laughs> but also, realistically, anyone who lives in a city is probably, you know, 
a, fl- a few levels up for it's the mass true. grave. It's true. I mean, the same here in San Francisco. They had to move mass graves of potter's fields from one place to another when they got too, too full. Anyway, this particular mass grave, delightful topic of conversation, I know, uh, was filled to capacity by victims of the yellow fever epidemics that went on in the late 1700s and 1800s uh, that affected New York. I mean, they could not bury people fast enough individually. Like you heard, bodies piling up in the street in Memphis. So they had to kind of go wholesale there. Wow, just massive holes in the go. Yep, yep, yep. So the the problem, I mean, there are many, but the problem is that once you have yellow fever, there is nothing you can do. And that's still true today. Like we didn't have a treatment when it first broke out in the 1600s. We didn't have a treatment in the 1700s. We still have no treatment for yellow fever. You just kind of have to hope for the best. Really? Yes. Yes. What? I mean, we, there's nothing you can do except like. Mo- when so there's st- vaccination, right? Well, yes, exactly. So there's, there's prophylaxis, there's preventative measures. But once you have yellow fever, you, Molly, as Molly said, you can like keep the person hydrated and comfortable and just like hope that they recover. And what's the diagnosis when you get it? Up to, so it, once you've progressed to the um, bleeding from the eyes and producing black vomit stage of the disease, um, there's a, a 50% chance that you will die of your infection. Flip a coin. 50%. So it's pretty bleak. Um, and as we discussed, like the fear that people would have of this disease, like they know what yellow fever is. It's got this very characteristic suite of symptoms. You turn yellow literally mm. from jaundice. And can you imagine like you're a, a, a townsperson in Massachusetts in the 1700s. It's summertime and someone gets yellow fever. Oh, you're like, they've been drinking a lot of Sunny Delight. <laughs> Is it, is, is it the sunny D or is it the yellow fever? Oh, I don't know. Are the they bleeding from the eyes? I don't know. That's the that's the the key there. That's the turning point. So as you can imagine, people in response to these outbreaks basically just run. Like they up and leave everything behind. So you get these mass exoduses of towns. And actually in, I think it's 1793, there's a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, which is the, at the time, the seat of the U.S. government. And the government shuts down. I mean, we talk about government shutdowns these days over funding. The government shut down in 1793 because of yellow fever and everybody left the city, including George Washington. But I'm going to tell you more about that after the break. We are back and you are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. So at this time, 1700s, right, we are pre anybody knowing what a virus is, right? Like there's no conception that a virus is a thing that would make you sick. And they also don't understand that the mosquitoes are what's causing the disease. We have no understanding or or a concept of a vector borne disease yet in the 1700s. What do they think it is then? Great question. I was just about to tell you. Uh, the official line is quote unquote filth. There's this like very uh, highly technical scientific definition in the literature of the time that it's caused by uh, filth. And actually, in one of the outbreaks, I think it might have been either Philadelphia or Boston, the outbreak was blamed on a bunch of coffee that was dumped off a dock. They were like, oh, it's dirty. It's producing bad air or quote unquote miasma. Yeah. So people were convinced that fleeing would would save them because it would get them to fresh air, fresh country air. So in terms of filth, it's, remedies. It's, it's less of like, you need to wash more. Yeah. It's more of like no, bathing's decomposition not a hot and that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they're seeing that as a, as a, a source of the disease. Exactly. They have this, this I obviously very flawed concept of what's what's causing the disease. So this is where we enter this age of exploration to try and figure out what's causing yellow fever and how to make people better. And this is where 
the hero of our episode, a young man named Stubbins Firth enters yes. the scene. Nice one, and that's Stubbins. Stubbins, right? Good name. Also, last name Firth, two Fs. FF. Stubbins for Firth. Stubbins Firth. So he, although it sounds like he's from, I have no idea where, maybe Scotland. Sorry, Scots. Uh, He's actually from New Jersey, but he's studying at the University of Pennsylvania in the early 1900s. So he's in Philadelphia when that outbreak happens in 1793. So he's seen this go down. And obviously, yellow fever, as we've been discussing, highly impactful disease. Everybody's going to remember what it is and be concerned about it. So he's in medical school. And he wants to, as a concerned citizen, a curious person and, you know, an aspiring doctor, figure out what's causing yellow fever and how people catch it. Mm. And so he conducts the most insane series of experiments that I have ever heard of in my life. Okay, you got to get ready. This is where things get really squicky. So I'm just warning everybody right now. Hold on to your hats or whatever you're wearing on your head. So he, he starts to notice this doesn't spread in the same way that measles or smallpox does, right? It's it's not being spread necessarily within households, what we call community spread, like we are seeing with coronavirus right now, like mm-hmm. where people who live in your house with you are really likely to get it because they're close to you, because those illnesses are transmitted by bodily fluids, like you Droplets. know, coughing, exactly, yeah. things like that. And he's noticing, okay, yellow fever does not spread like that. It spreads differently. We see a different pattern here. And so he starts to think, I think yellow fever is not contagious from person to person, right? Because, and he's, he's hit on something here, because as we now know, it's a vector-borne disease. You can only catch it from an infected mosquito. Another person isn't going to give it to you, even, I mean, if they're producing massive amounts of black vomit or bleeding from the eyes. If you touch them, you're not going to get it. You have to get it from a mosquito. Unless the mosquito bites them, buzzes around, stays in the house, goes and bites the next person. Exactly. So you can see how it's confusing. I mean, if you don't think of insects as anything related to this disease at all, you know, you have no idea what's going on. So Stubbins, Mm. remarkable man. Stubbs, Stubbs. Stubbs, Stubbs. Our man, Stubbs. I mean, I just want to know what was going through his head at the time because I he makes incisions into his arm. He literally cuts his own body open and drops black vomit into the wound. Dude, like you know what that's gonna get sick. What? With yellow fever. I mean, he had to be so convinced that this wasn't going to make him sick. Hey, Stubbs, Stubbs, you coming out on Saturday? Oh, I don't know. I've just uh, lacerated <laughs> might, my arm and dropped in a bit of black vomit. Might be good, might, might not. Might be dead. Count me as a maybe. <laughs> Ask for me tomorrow and you may find me a grave man, in the words of Shakespeare. He's just insane. He's insane. So he he continues with this whole suite of experiments, uh, administering both vomit and blood from infected patients to himself. Wow. I want you to read this one. This is my favorite one. This is from Stubbins's own paper that he published on these experiments. And this is his like little sentence summary of what happened in, in this experiment. Two drops of fresh black vomit were dropped into my right eye. It felt a little uneasy. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. It felt a little uneasy for about a minute, but produced no pain or inflammation. I have frequently had cold water to produce the same effect. Yes, yeah, the same, in it? Yeah. Dropping yeah, a bit yeah, of black yeah. vomit in the eye. Same Feels as some same. cold water. Just very chill, very wow, casual, very is, cool. He is fully committed. Bold. He's a bold man. I love Stubbins, but my man is absolutely bonkers. And uh, I just, I, I need to tell you one more because it's, 
it's just out there and uh, then we'll be done, I promise. But he takes blood from an infected patient and again drops it into an open incision on his arm. And then almost as an afterthought, the last line in this paper that he has about this particular experiment goes, the blood was also swallowed in considerable quantities without producing the least effect. Oh. Stubbins. I hope he mixed it up with You're like joking. something. I know. I want to know how he drank it, actually. Blood smoothie. <laughs> Not recommended. And so people have some mixed reactions to this paper, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> Poor guy. He like puts this all together. He works really hard. He obviously has to be very confident in his theory that yellow fever is not contagious through this, what we call excreta, you know, things that people are like producing from their body while they're sick. He's very, very convinced, but uh, he, he puts it all together and it's his final dissertation as a medical student. He publishes it and he's obviously very proud of it. And the medical community as a whole is literally just like, gross, bro. <laughs> That's horrible. We hate it. <laughs> it's like the, the the 1800s version and medical community version of like, thanks, we hate it. <laughs> So they didn't even, they didn't, they didn't go for it. No, they're not into it at all. They're not interested because the prevailing theories at the time were so strongly held. But he's shown that if you put the uh, excreta, as you say, in your eye or drink it or whatever, it doesn't lead to infection. So the dude's shown it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and basically the upshot, the, the response from people is like, well, you haven't figured out how to fix it. So... Uh. We don't care. Yeah, but I've shown it's not this thing. Yes, exactly. It's not it's not contagious. But I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I kind of see where they're coming from, because as far as they're concerned, people are still getting sick and we still don't understand the mode of transit transmission. Like, yes, we know it's not this probably, but nah, then where do you go from there? I mean, yeah. and, and Stubbins, we're still a long way from vector theory, from this idea that diseases are spread by something uh, like an insect. And so Stubbins' theory, which, I mean, he, my man, he's doing a great job, but his hypothesis is that the heat and stresses of the summer months are what brings on the disease because he notices, obviously, but from where? exactly. I mean, mm. you know, we're, we're a long way from a lot of microbial understanding. And he, I, and granted, to give him credit, he has noticed that these outbreaks happen during the warmer months because obviously, as we know now, that's when mosquitoes are active in especially these northern climes in the U.S. Which so, is also explains why they thought that those, those miasma was rising off piles of whatever coffee or whatever you yeah. said that's been dumped in the heat. So, okay. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's interesting because he's got, he gets some, some responses from reviewers. Um, reviewers literally write in response to this paper uh, that this is disgusting. These experiments are unnecessary. And I mean, at least one of those is true. Yes, yeah, disgusting. Yeah, I mean, they had a point. Yeah, disgusting. Yes, necessary. Mm, I would argue. And Stubbins actually has a great clap back to one of these in a letter that he's writing back to this review defending himself basically he's got a great thing to say he responds by saying it is my opinion that the progress of science tends to the extension of human happiness everything therefore having relation to this whether it be disgusting or not is laudable so he's basically saying like listen man i'm trying to make the life better for people by understanding diseases get off my yeah case. i'm trying to do a thing that's going to lead to progress of science which leads to more happiness exactly so, so I'm he's, doing a good thing. he's basically responding with like yeah disgusting it may be but worthwhile damn it so i, I like his response he's he definitely uh defends himself well this is mid 17th century so he at? publishes his study uh for his you know crowning achievement of his medical school education and he graduates from medical school medical school in 1805 all right so it's like so so the big like plague of london was couple of hundred years ago. And and here's the thing is like so many people and throughout throughout all of these diseases, 
do recognize these patterns, like Stubbins noticing it happens in the summer or people, uh, I think, um, started to have like upper class people in Europe started to have little like ferrets and small dogs that they would keep because fleas would jump off of them and onto the dogs. Uh, so there, there are all of these like sort of ancillary responses to these diseases from patterns that people notice without even knowing that there's a vector involved. And until we realize the, what the vector is and how it's working, we don't understand why these these patterns, uh, you know, these these stopgap measures put in place by by these old old school people, ye old people. But it's just amazing that, you know, we're now in the 19th century, right? And these plagues have been existing mm -hmm. uh, with vectors, but we haven't got any better grip on them. So uh, unfortunately for Stubbins, he publishes this study in 1805. And then literally right in 1805, as, as that year starts, there's a lull in yellow fever outbreaks, at least really, really, really bad ones, like the one in Philadelphia in 1793. So from 1805 to 1819, it's pretty quiet on the yellow fever front. And then Stubbins dies uh, a well-respected doctor in 1820s. And so that's one of the reasons why we don't really hear from Stubbins again. What did he die of? Oh did, gosh! Did he do like some other crazy experiment on himself? And that it went would wrong? be hilarious, but no. Um, unfortunately, he today uh, I don't believe gravity exists, so I'm going <laughs> to step out of this top floor window. No, it seems like he calms down a little bit. He uh, he chills out and becomes like a family doctor in Charleston, and then you know just lives his quiet life. So Stubbins, that's that Stubbins' big contribution to our understanding of yellow fever. But unfortunately, we don't you know take his findings and put them to good use for a long time. So let's fast forward to the end of the 1800s and yellow fever springs back up again because of another big change in world travel dynamics. So first we had the slave trade and now we have the development of the steamboat. Mm. So people can go a lot more places a lot faster which is fun. So that facilitates the movement of a lot more than we intended to, of course. So the U.S. is once again rocked by yellow fever, and that is how we come to Memphis, Tennessee, because in 1878, a ship carrying sugar from the Caribbean ends up bringing a stowaway. One of the passengers on board was feverish and ended up spreading this epidemic of yellow fever to the whole Mississippi Valley. And when it first hit Memphis, the, about half the population fled in a matter of days. They said with, you know, doors wide open and tables still set with their silver, people just fled as quickly as they could. And it left only about 19,000 people in the city. 17,000 of those caught yellow fever. So you can imagine just how incredibly overwhelming that was. You know, ultimately one-tenth of the population died in that particular epidemic. So Memphis became quarantined. Whoa. Insane. Right. Wow. Did they realize that it was this thing that had been on the shores previously, but kind of diminished I for a while? I think by now, yellow fever has, you know, a really strong reputation and people remember what yellow fever is. Imagine that. 17K out of 19K people start bleeding from the eyes and I turn mean, yellow. Everybody you know would have it. Well, here's the thing is like, like Molly said, one tenth of the that infected population dies of yellow fever. That means that not all of them got the most severe version. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so they're sometimes not all be you have some milder symptoms. Exactly. So um, not everybody's going to be bleeding from the eyes. But also pro tip, if you take anything away from this uh, particular episode of our podcast, it's that if Mosquitoes you, are evil. I mean, if, <laughs> yes, granted, given number one blanket statement, mosquitoes are evil. If you have black vomit, it means that you're digesting blood that you're bleeding into your stomach. So you need to immediately seek medical attention. That's just my 
my number one tip for uh, for, tip. for at home health. Memphis is not the only city that gets hit hard because something else is happening at the end of the 1800s that marks a big turning point in this yellow fever story. And it's dun, 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 the Spanish-American War, which only lasts five months. It's a five month long war between, uh, you know, Spain and America, obviously. Uh, that's essentially a squabble over uh, who's going to get to be in charge of what colonies. And it eventually results in Cuban independence from Spain. Anyway, during the Spanish-American War, there is an outbreak of yellow fever, and it's estimated that fewer than a thousand soldiers actually die in battle, like in the conflicts of this war. And over 5,000 died of disease, most of which are attributed to yellow fever. So the U.S. sort of starts to sit up and pay attention and they're like, oh, hold on a second. Yellow fever is a problem, not because it's been decimating our shores for years, but because it's going to be a problem for military action. When the military is affected, that's when change really happens. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) as always. So the U.S. military sends a major in uh, the army down to Cuba, and his name is Walter Reed. I don't know if you've heard of Walter Reed Medical Center, but it's a very famous hospital here in the United States. And he is who that facility is named after because he's sent down there to see if he can figure out what we are going to do about yellow fever. Like, what the heck are we going to do about it? How are we going to make it stop killing people? They've obviously still got no idea about vectors. They haven't, have they, have they been like, oh, it is in tropical climes. So therefore, what could that possibly be? Hey, mosquitoes are a thing. You've led me right into this, Greg. This is beautiful. Walter Reed goes down there and he meets a Cuban doctor named Carlos Finlay, who is the first person to have said it's mosquitoes. Mm. He's the originator of this vector theory. And 20 years before Reed comes down, he's conducting experiments where he lets mosquitoes bite patients infected with yellow fever and then traps those mosquitoes and takes them and lets them bite healthy people. So he's doing a very similar thing to Stubbins. He's experimenting on not himself yet, uh, but other people. And he's trying to prove this idea that mosquitoes are involved, which we will dive into right after this short commercial break. And we're back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. Carlos Finlay, Cuban doctor, absolute hero. So he's the one who's conducting all of these experiments uh, that that mosquitoes are involved because even after Stubbins publishes this paper that says the disease is not contagious from person to person, there's still all of this skepticism in the scientific community about not knowing how people get yellow fever. Even after all of this evidence from Stubbins way back when saying it's not contagious from person to person and this evidence that Finlay has been compiling for years about the fact that mosquitoes are pretty definitely involved, scientific community is still very skeptical. I mean, he gives presentations to panels of doctors and scientists and they go, yeah, sure, man, don't, we don't believe it. But I get that because it's changing their whole uh, worldview and medical view of disease transmission. It's a huge so, sea change in our understanding yeah. of epidemiology. So I'll let, I'll let Molly tell you about the response to Carlos's ideas. And people sort of thought he was crazy for coming up with this idea. But ultimately, Walter Reed believed him. They decided to demonstrate, try to figure out exactly how it was working. And if you think about it, in this time period, it's really before microscopes could see a virus. So their only way to prove it was to let infected mosquitoes bite humans and see if they caught yellow fever. And so, you know, as I mentioned, these awful and horrific symptoms, they actually had U.S. Army soldiers volunteer, young soldiers volunteer to be part of this study um, and do the human experiments and see if they caught yellow fever. And that way they were ultimately able to prove that that's how 
it was being spread, not by filth or contact with sick patients, but by these mosquitoes. So I, w- I wanted to talk about the ethics of mm-hmm. self-experimentation, mm-hmm. right? But but the notion that in order to actually prove this, you need a big enough data set. You mm-hmm. can't just have the N equals one of Stubbins or Carlos. Well, I tried right? it on myself and yeah, it was exa- fine. Exactly, yeah. right? Um, that's the cause of lots of today's wellness-related claim issues. Uh, a whole but anyway, other episode. That's, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> we could talk about that for years. I rant about that. Um, <laughs> so, but that, the idea that you need a... You need a data set and you turn to the US Army who you already been inspired to, to actually look into it because you were losing too many mm-hmm. of, of the soldiers. But yet they're then going to do an experiment with the soldiers knowing that it could lead. I don't know what the mortality rate of, of this is at this point, but it was 50 percent mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. That's 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 crazy. I know. Well, Molly actually has something really good to say about it because I uh, did ask her about the ethics of this and we, we went into depth about it. And so she's she has an interesting perspective. If you were a soldier fighting, you know, you were much more likely, seven times more likely to die of the disease than in combat. And so this was sort of another enemy that they were fighting. And I think these young, healthy soldiers felt that they could do more helping with this cause even than fighting in the battlefield. And all of the soldiers did survive. They purposely chose young and healthy ones to get the fever, it tends to be more lethal the older you are. And so they hoped and they were right that with the right, you know, care, these soldiers did all recover and eventually develop immunity to yellow fever. But yeah, it definitely says something about not just the medical ethics, but the heroism of these men that they were willing to sign up and do this. So her perspective is that this is on a volunteer basis and the men see this disease and disease in general. Like when she says you're seven times more likely to die of the disease, uh, die of a disease than in combat at this time. That's like of a lot of different diseases. Also because we don't have antibiotics yet. So people are getting infected on the battlefield left and right. But she she just has this idea or this perspective. And the problem is, is that it's not necessarily that supported by historical documentation because not a lot of these soldiers are written about. They don't write about themselves. You know, there's not a lot of historical evidence preserved about what it was like to necessarily be a working class man who joins the army and goes down to Cuba to fight. So, you know, eh, whether it was actually volunteer or how volunteer volunteer is when you're in the army <laughs> um, is is up for debate, I think. But she also mentioned uh, that some of them developed immunity to it. Yes. Did they did they realize that? And then from that, did that then lead to the vaccination? Our man, Carlos, he is so fantastic. He's conducting these experiments and he realizes that if you get bitten by more than one mosquito, Uh, you're more likely to get a more severe version of the virus. You're more likely to get a severe case that results in that 50% mortality rate. So the more you're exposed to the virus, the more severe your case is going to be. And so uh, he's doing these experiments where he tries to introduce one mosquito, two mosquitoes, three mosquitoes, and see how severe the case is. And he realizes that in those populations that he has after those experiments, the men who were exposed to the milder forms of the virus, so they had a milder case, develop immunity to yellow fever. So they they do not get yellow fever again when he re-exposes them to another mosquito. Mm-hmm. So this is our first understanding of, uh, I mean, not our first understanding of, of the idea of vaccination that's happened previously with smallpox, but he's the first one who says with yellow fever specifically, okay, we give a weak form of the virus to someone and now they are no longer susceptible to infection. 
But I want to go back to Walter Reed because Reed sends down uh, some assistants to help Carlos with these uh, with these experiments. And one of Reed's assistants is so convinced, like Stubbins was of the non-contagious nature of yellow fever, this assistant is so convinced that mosquito vector theory is true. He's on Carlos's side 100%. He wants to show this medical establishment what's really going on. And so he infects himself oh. with a, a particularly nasty case of yellow fever. He recovers, but another research assistant of Reed's accidentally gets bitten by a mosquito because mosquitoes are like relatively hard to control in a laboratory setting, especially in the 1800s. We don't well, have... If you think about fly research, I mean, the number of universities and research centers I've been to, in, in the, you know, and they're doing research on flies and then a fly buzzes around and like, that's one of mine. Yep. You know, when you're just eating your food time. and I'm like, they get out? They're like, yeah, yeah, they get out quite they often. Just chill. But imagine if a infected mosquito gets out. Right, when you're working with a biohazardous vector, you know, casual, fine. So accidents happen all the time. This poor guy, research assistant of Reed's, accidentally gets bitten by an infected mosquito and he unfortunately does die. So it's not until the there's one final kind of iconic experiment that Reed and Finlay conduct in about 1900. And there are some unfortunate losses along the way, including the research assistant of Reed's, uh, that vector theory, mosquito vector theory for yellow fever is officially confirmed and accepted and backs up our man Stubbins, the yellow fever is not spread by the vomit or the blood. Wow. And that's 300-ish years after that kind of proliferation of yellow fever around exactly. the world. Exactly. Exactly. So we've had centuries before wow. we finally get down. Shows you how long it takes for uh, ideas to kind of And we could say that for, for so many of the other diseases that have really shaped the trajectory of human history. So I've got good and bad news for you, Greg. The bad news is here's a mosquito. Bad news is there's still no cure for yellow fever and it's still spread by mosquitoes. Wow. <laughs> and of course, there are still mosquitoes. But the good news is that from that understanding of the immunity from a, a, a weaker version of the virus, we do eventually get an immunization for yellow fever. So yeah. if you were going to go somewhere where yellow fever is pretty prevalent, there's still uh, areas of the world where yellow fever is very common. Mm -hmm. um, not in the epidemic proportions we have seen in the past, but still a big problem. You uh, will have your doctor recommend that you get the yellow fever vaccine. So, so we're very lucky and... I can't really emphasize enough how our understanding of the actual vector has changed the way we handle the disease and has been able to give us control over it. Because now that we know that mosquitoes breed in standing water, we can now exact measures and regulations on people having standing water on their property, things like that. There are all kinds of regulations in these more tropical parts of the world about making sure that we stay safe. Um, mosquito netting, uh, insecticide spray, things like that all have also really contributed to this downscaling of uh, yellow fever epidemics around the world. So we're obviously still looking into a cure for yellow fever. Um, how, like, what is the cutting edge approach to try to find a cure for something like that? I think something we don't often talk or think about when we talk about diseases, as you said, obviously we're still looking for a cure for yellow fever. It really depends on the pharmaceutical economics uh, of everything. Right. So if it's where it is most prevalent and who would be funding the affected, crazy cost of development of that cure. And if someone can make money off of what they develop. Right. Yeah. So if if obviously you and I were sitting here, I mean, it's a public health issue. You want people to not get sick. Of course, we would be developing something for for yellow fever more than a vaccine. But that's not necessarily the mode of thinking. That's not necessarily how medications get developed. It's mostly 
especially now, economic incentive for if someone can then profit off of what that drug would be, um, then someone would be incentivized to do that research. But we're not necessarily living in that world right now with yellow fever. I mean, the vaccine is quote unquote effective and people make a lot of money off of that. So, eh. yeah, but there are plenty of people around the world that haven't had the vaccine. You're telling me. So we have a vaccine. It's effective. But on the other hand, certainly there's a section in the middle of Africa known as the yellow fever belt, where they still see urban epidemics that will kill thousands at a time. And they've also seen a lot of cases come out of the Amazon. Um, usually they're, they're travelers who have gone down there and not gotten the yellow fever vaccine and may come back with that fever. And because doctors really aren't seeing, you know, they don't see it in the numbers they once did. They may not recognize it in the, the beginnings of the symptoms until the jaundice sets in or one of the more telltale symptoms like the black vomit. So it's it's definitely scary and it is still a problem worldwide. Climate change is contributing to that because the mosquitoes are having a larger range of areas to move into. And then certainly global travel contributes to that. So the CDC, the, the World Health Organization, they're all, they closely monitor these mosquitoes and try to prevent any urban large scale outbreaks from occurring again. So, so in 2016, Brazil had uh, an outbreak of yellow fever. Um, about 600 people died. They had a thousands of cases. And coming back to coronavirus, it's a little bit of a similar situation in that you see an outbreak in a highly densely populated area. And then we're contending, you know, like with the trans transcontinental slave trade, like with the development of the steamboat. Now we live in the era of airplanes mm. and really, really rapid international travel. You know, somebody from the Brazil yellow fever epidemic could be here in California in a couple hours. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking that um, it's naive to think that only these particular areas, you know, um, Molly was saying uh, areas in Africa, uh, you know, areas in in the Americas, Amazon, etc. Mm -hmm. um, it's naive to think that just because it's there, you know, it's not going to affect the rest of the world, but it absolutely can. Yeah. We should be responsible for for humans <laughs> worldwide, not just those that are our neighbour, you know, living around us all, oh, but the risks are X percentage low. It's just like, no, that's not the way it works. We're a connected world. Exactly. I think it, that we're living in a, in a fascinating time for public health because as we're seeing with coronavirus, we do not live in an era where we have these siloed areas of the world that are affected by this disease and this disease and this disease. Every disease is a world disease in the era yes. where people can take it anywhere. And so I think we're seeing this this uh, time of really rapid change in terms of public health response. And it's still in development. Like we're still really trying to figure out how to get a handle on diseases that would spread this way. So I, I actually think it's kind of incredible that we haven't seen a more severe yellow fever uh necessarily pandemic since uh, the advent of international travel. And I think that's definitely down to uh, people ha who have been immunized. And in some countries, uh, immunization with yellow fever is put into childhood vaccines, like with the measles vaccine, ah, right, okay. things like that. So it depends on, you know, if your government has mandated that for public health reasons and uh, and also our understanding of vector control. So thank you, Carlos Finlay, yep. really, for, uh, you know, helping us figure out how to not all die from yellow fever. And thank you. Stubbins for Firth. Stubbins. Although, you know, 
No one ever really kind of had his back. I know. He never got to see the fruition of his experiments, but he is really, in my opinion, an unsung hero of uh, our understanding of disease uh, transmission because he, he takes it upon himself to do these really crazy experiments to, you know, in the name of of understanding. Disclaimer, don't try this at home. Yeah, please. We are not living in the time that you can be a, a gentleman scientist and just do an experiment in your kitchen, cut yourself open, drop some stuff in. Don't do it. It won't get peer reviewed and you'll probably die. And everyone's just going to ignore it anyway. <laughs> They're going to be like, gross, bro. We hate it. <laughs> so I will, I'll leave you on the comforting thought. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Stubbins. But that we have to keep developing our ideas of this global health uh, environment, ecosystem, and responding in ways that not only uh, take into account these travel patterns, these, these incredible changes in human ability to travel, and the way our climate is changing especially for vector-borne diseases. It's going to be really important to understand how uh, ecosystems are going to change and where diseases may pop up that we have not previously seen them and where we're not prepared for them. So that's my my final really word, interesting. word on that yellow fever. Awesome. Thanks. I really enjoyed that. Even the gross bits. If you want even more on the American plague in particular, then I highly recommend you check out Molly's book, which is called The American Plague. And you can find the link to that and the link to all of the sources I used in this episode in the show description. And please do rate and review the show. It really helps it grow. Uh, As just telling your mates if you enjoyed it. More episodes coming soon, uh, we hope. So do subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you would like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and today's episode was researched written and produced by me Marin hansberger you can find me at Marin b that's Marin b-e-a on instagram twitter youtube everywhere uh, it was listened to and very much enjoyed by me. I'm Greg Foote uh, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm just at Greg Foote. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Swick. And our exec producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hitakuda. Finally, another big thanks to our guest expert, Molly Caldwell-Crosby. And we really hope you tune in to the next episode. Thank you so much for listening.